Two days ago, I saw a vehicle that had hauled that tanker. You want to get out of here? You talk to me. minute where we swear we've seen most of this before in Mad Max 2 The Road Warrior, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 4, which begins with a Sports Center highlight reel of 1979's Mad Max, and it ends with a close-up of Max driving the black-on-black from the last movie. So we start off this minute with pretty much an abridged recap of Mad Max 79. We got a couple of shots in yesterday's minute, mostly of a motorcycle cresting a ridge and then like a quick shot of an MFP car chasing the Knight Rider. But this is like the bulk of what we see from the first movie. Yeah. It's like, you know, those uh, fan edits where mm-hmm. they like remake a trailer to make the movie completely different than what it is. Yeah. I think that's what George Miller got to do here. Because the, the voiceover and what it's talking about and the shots present a different story than what we spent months analyzing. Yeah. I think what George Miller wanted to do here is he wanted to make sure that he presented people with enough of the first movie that they could really get on board with it. Because he assumed that a lot of people in America probably specifically, but also around the world, maybe didn't catch all of that first movie. And so he gave a very abbreviated version of it. And I think if you need to boil down the 93 minutes of Mad Max down to a one-minute montage. They did a fairly good job because they hit a lot of the major ideas without having to go into any of the specifics. But you're right. It's not exactly the same. He also may have tried to explain to us what was going on in the wider world. The community that we were a part of in the last... Mad Max movie seemed to be relatively small. Yeah. And they were at least together enough to have a police force. Mm-hmm. And by the sound of it, by by the sound of, of what society was like at this point, that's really something. Yeah. So what we saw in Mad Max is that for the most part, everyone was still getting along. It wasn't necessarily the full-on white line nightmare that the prologue makes it out to be. Civilization was still together enough that, you know, people were going out to the diner for breakfast. They were going to nightclubs at the end of their work days. Like, things were still being held pretty close together. But the narrator says in this minute, only those mobile enough to scavenge, brutal enough to pillage would survive. And it's not necessarily what we saw in the last movie. And I feel like there's a span of time after Mad Max 79, but before Road Warrior, where this blurb from the narrator really applies specifically. I mean... And I think also location. Oh, absolutely. At the end of Mad Max, Max drives off into the wilderness. He is now in a different part of the country. Mm -hmm. So things are probably very different out there where even in the best of times, even in modern times now, society is pretty loose out there. Yeah. And... And, and, and after some sort of collapse, I think people out away from centers of society and centers of government probably would have gotten to this, this stage that the voiceover talks about quicker. Yeah. To the point, especially the mobility part, mm-hmm. where mobility is key. So 
if you are unable to be mobile, then like we talked about last time, if you if you're not mobile, then you can't get food, you can't get necessities and things get rough really fast. Yeah. So the narrator goes on to say the gangs took over the highway, ready to wage war for a tank of juice. And in this maelstrom of decay, ordinary men were battered and smashed men like Max. We have a bit of an issue here as far as how much of this opening narration do we want to apply to the images that we're actually seeing versus how much do we want to kind of take them each at their own value. Because like we said, there's not necessarily a one-to-one correlation. I mean, we talk about the gangs taking over the highway. I wouldn't necessarily say that Toe Cutter and his gang had complete control over the highway. They just seemed like a roving band of miscreants. They didn't yeah. seem like they had total iron-fisted control. No. It seemed like they had control over wherever they happened to be. Right. Very like they rolled into that little town, New Jerusalem, and took control. But then they left. And they rolled into the beachfront with the ice cream shop and the and the grease rat, and they took control. At some point, they're going to leave and move on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at some point, like, they get better organized. They get stronger. And I think the idea of planting gangs that take over the roadways is kind of planting the seed for what we're going to see in the Lord Humongous' horde later on in the movie. The idea that they are organized, they are a giant collective of violent individuals and that we're supposed to just have that in the back of our minds that they are out there causing trouble. Now, one part of this beginning narration that really sticks with the first movie is the idea that a maelstrom of decay battered and smashed Max into the person that he is at the beginning of The Road Warrior. The voiceover makes it very clear why Max is the way he is. And based on the cutscenes that he that is that are attached to that voiceover, they make no mention of Goose at all. Yeah. It's all about Jesse and Sprague, which alone, that happening to a man, yes, those things are devastating and could cause a person to completely change his outlook on life and his his ways. But that's not all that happened to Max. More happened to him than that. So, I, I mean, he's simplifying for the sake of an opening montage. Yeah. I mean, I think you can kind of say that the line that he was battered, because battered implies multiple hits. Yes. And smashed implies a final break. So I feel like the battering was, you know, all of the violence that the MFP as an organization was experiencing. And then the final smashing was what the narrator goes on to talk about, how the warrior Max, in the roar of an engine, he lost everything and became a shell of a man, a burnt-out, desolate man. That the loss of his wife and child, that was the final nail in the coffin, so to speak. Yep, that absolutely pushed him over the edge. Mm -hmm. So we haven't actually gone through every little bit of this montage just yet. So... As we start this minute, we're kind of seeing the image of an MFP cruiser chasing a black car. And I forget exactly what we said when we covered each one of these shots the first time around. Luckily, you can go on our website and find all of our back episodes to catch up if you haven't actually listened to season one. It's all there for reference anyway. So we start off with that opening chase. We're very much in the first action-packed 10 minutes of the first movie. And it's a great scene to pull footage from. 
Absolutely. Especially with how fast and kinetic this movie is going to be, you want to have all the fast and kinetic stuff from the first movie thrown in for good measure. So we see the MFP chasing the Knight Rider. We see a very quick shot of Goose on his motorcycle, and that's from the opening chase as well. And this is the only shot of Goose that we get in this entire movie. There's no other flashbacks other than this prologue. So this is our only chance to think of Steve Bisley. Gone too soon. (laughs) He's still alive. The actor is still alive. The character, you know, didn't fare so well. So it's here that the Montage gets a little interesting because we get a t- close-up of the toe cutter, Hugh Keysburn, swinging his axe into a window. And that is from a scene where he and his other gang members smashed up a car on the side of the road. And there's going to be several more shots of that in this montage. But we see the axe go through the window. And then instead of seeing the young couple inside the Chevy, we see a quick shot of Charlie, who's one of the MFP officers. And he flips out and dives underneath the the dashboard because that's from the opening chase where they smash through, I think it's the blue van specifically. I think so, yeah. Yeah, because we actually see him duck and then Big Bopper go through the blue van. Yes, I think this is the first instance where it appears that George Miller is rewriting the first movie. Mm-hmm. And, and I kinda... applying much more violence directly between Toe Cutter and his gang and the MFP. And I kind of like that change, actually, because Toe Cutter was very cowardly. Yeah, he was very opportunistic with his violence. Yeah, he never picked a fight with someone that was either just as strong or stronger than he was. He always singled out and picked off people one by one. He was very guerrilla about it. And the idea that Toe Cutter's gang would actually go up against multiple MFP cruisers and take them out one by one by using their mobility and their weapons and things like that. I would have liked to have seen that. I feel like that's one of the things after George Miller made Mad Max, he said, well, if I could go back and do it again, this is one of the things I would add. Yes. Because, I mean, that Knight Rider chase is pretty exciting. There's a lot of really close calls and a lot of crazy things that happen, but we never really get to see Toe Cutter and his gang pull out all the stops. They're usually just either terrorizing women and children or lying in wait to spring a trap. Yeah, the only time we we get to see them pull out all the stops when they attack Lair and his girlfriend, which is where a lot of footage for this montage comes from. Mm -hmm. Because it is by far the most violent scene of the movie. So if you want to create the, the sense, to create the atmosphere of violence between cops and not cops you're going to use that scene. Yeah, you've got a lot of aggression shown from the gang members specifically. Yep. So we see Big Bopper smash through the van. It's a very cool scene because the van kind of spins around and whatnot. And then we get a quick shot of Toe Cutter like driving away quickly. And I think the idea is that we're supposed to believe that Toe Cutter came up along Big Bopper, smashed their windshield, and they went into the van and then he escaped from there. But after that, we get kind of a cool, it's like a double exposure shot of the crashes from Kirk's Bridge where uh, it was Mudguts, Starbuck, Diabondo, and Clunk? Yes. Yeah. All four of them kind of all crashed at once. Two of them went over the side of the bridge and two of them just kind of rolled in the street. And so we get kind of a cool double exposure where we get to see all four of them experiencing that crash at once. And then that one gives way to a couple of the bikies, and I could not remember specifically which two, 
but they're running up and smashing the back passenger side window of the Chevy. Like the camera's in the back seat and they rush up and they smash that window. And that's from the smashing scene that we were just talking about. But that's actually overlaid with March Hare when it hits that little ramp of made out of wood and dirt. And it flips over during the opening chase. Mm-hmm. Yep. So we get to see that one in its entirety as it flips over onto its roof and comes to a stop. Then we get to see a quick shot of Lair screaming as someone's at his window. We get a quick shot of, I think it was Starbuck that got hit by his motorcycle as it was sliding on the ground in the Kirksbridge scene. I think it was Starbuck who had I the uh, ponytail Starbuck. on his helmet. Yes, who got hit in the back of the head. Yeah, it's so weird being this separated from the first movie because yes. we spent so much time with it. Right, I can no longer remember like who exactly did what. Yeah, that's probably for the best. We don't want to lean too heavily on the first movie after no. all. So we get to see Big Bopper exploding through the camper again, Yep, which is always a fun shot. It's Yeah, it's an iconic shot. You want to use it wherever you can. Yeah. Because you see that and you think Mad Max. I think I had it as like our website's main top image for like most of season one. That's right. You did. I've since changed it to, I think right now it's the Sandstorm from Fury Road. But just because that's kind of a, it's a dynamic shot. It looks really cool. But I didn't come here to discuss web design. We get another shot of Layer screaming. And this is the one where he screams and like leans really close into the camera. So it's really easy to pick out. Then we see a quick shot of the Raven from the Chevy destruction scene. And I'm kind of glad that we get to see at least a little bit of the Raven again. Mm -hmm. Because of what Ravens meant in that first movie. That they were kind of a spirit animal almost for the bikies. Yeah. You know? The idea that whenever you heard a raven or sheep or whatever the, the sound effect <laughs> ended up being, whenever you heard that, it meant that there were gang members nearby. Mm-hmm. And so I like that we get a nice little nod to that. But then most importantly, especially for what we're going to see tomorrow, is that we get the over-the-head view of Max behind the wheel of the black-on-black with the supercharger off to his left. Our right, his left, but we get that nice over-the-hoods shot that we're going to see repeated. And I like the idea that we get to see it in its old iteration versus its new iteration. We can kind of do a one-to-one comparison of how Max looks differently in this second one. Yes. Kind of gives us a good side-by-side. So after we see Max driving in his car, we get a quick snippet of the Knight Rider's eyes bulging out before we see the giant explosion from the beginning of the first movie, which was so spectacular. I think the Knight Rider explosion was probably the most dynamic explosion we got in that entire movie. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it was pretty great. My only regret, and it's not really my regret to have, but I am just so bummed out that Knight Rider was such a small part of that movie, and he got to go out so spectacularly, and I mean... No one else really got that kind of exit. You could argue that Johnny the Boy kind of had a bit of an exciting exit, but I mean, that explosion was so far away and it was just, you know, one fireball. It's not like things were shooting off into the air or anything like that. I think maybe more psychologically, the Knight Rider crash and explosion was so excellent because it it was his own fault. Yeah. He did it to himself. He brought it upon himself. He crashed because... He couldn't drive with the skill he needed anymore. Johnny's explosion was more disturbing because Max had done it to him on purpose in a very 
sadistic way. You could argue that Johnny the Boy's explosion didn't need to be as spectacular just because of the buildup that was to it. Yes. Like you said, that kind of psychological prodding and just idea of cut your own foot off or explode. (laughs) Right. And we don't even know. I mean, we've had this conversation before, but we don't even know Johnny's status Mm -hmm. at the time of the explosion. That's very true. For all intents and purposes, Johnny the boy could still be alive out there somewhere, either without a foot or he was able to saw through that, you know, high tensile steel handcuff chain inside of five minutes. Yeah. One of those two things could be true, or he could have exploded with the ute when the little makeshift (laughs) oil gasoline reservoir to a trough to a lighter timed explosion contraption that Max set up finally went off. Like one of those three situations happened. Yep. I think it would be interesting if someday Johnny the boy comes back and he's got like a peg leg and he's sworn <laughs> vengeance on Max. And so you kind of get this Moby Dick, Johnny the boy is Ahab and Mad Max is the white whale. And so you get to have this kind of retro character going up against like, maybe set him up against Tom Hardy or something like that. Yeah. So you can like tie it all together there. Because you had Hugh Key's burn from Mad Max brought back for Fury Road. Well, maybe, I don't know if you necessarily want to bring back Tim Burns because he was kind of annoying to people on set because he took the role so seriously. But, you know, he's older now. He's, you know, matured since then. So I'm sure he'd have a better feel about it. But yeah, it'd be really interesting to bring back... Like, not just the actor, but also the character in with this new Max. It's kind of a cool idea. At least I think it's a cool idea. I don't know if anybody else thinks it's a cool idea, but I do. (laughs) I like the idea of it. Yeah. So, I like this opening montage. It's kind of a trip down memory lane for us. I can get a little little nostalgic about the first movie. Especially because as soon as we finish looking at all of the gang and cop stuff, we get more into Max and Jesse. And we really felt in the first movie that, you know, Jesse was underutilized. Yeah, I think they kind of take care of that here by making her explicitly such a large part of this montage Mm -hmm. and implying the part that she played in Max's history, implying what a big difference she made to Max's life, yeah. both living and then her passing. I, so I appreciate how much credit they're giving her now. Yeah, because when you look at how Max was at the beginning of Mad Max, like Jesse and Sprague were his anchors. They kept him level. They He didn't quite get as wild and off the handle as Goose did because he had that family life holding him down to earth. Yes. You know, and granted Max and Goose had very different personalities. It's not like they were ever the same person, but Max being a family man was a big part of his character. And when Goose died, Jesse was a huge part of consoling him and being there for him. And we saw plenty of that in the movie. Mm -hmm. They made it very clear to us how important their relationship was to Max. I think Jesse was largely the main reason he was able to get past the fact that he lost his best friend. Yeah. And we talked a little bit during that first season about, well, what if the roles were reversed? What if he lost Jesse and Sprague first and Goose was the one that had to like comfort him? And rethinking that, I just, I'm not sure if it would have gone as well because I feel like Goose is not quite as emotionally connected to Max to have really let him get through his feelings and whatnot. Yes, I agree. I think he maybe could have prevented Max 
from wandering off into the wilderness the way that he did, but help him recover to a point where he could go back to work and yeah. become a member of society again. I doubt it. Yeah, I think the main thing that we were bummed out about is that had Goose not been the first one to die, then that would have set them up as like a Max and Goose going out to hunt bikies together. It would have been a completely different second half of the movie. Yes. Yes, it would have. Because Goose dies, Jesse consoles him, and then he quits the MFP and goes on vacation. You know, if Jesse dies and Goose consoles him, then you get these two cops going out hunting gangsters. Like, would have been a road divergent in a wood, that type of thing. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think it would have, first of all, it would have looked more like these clips imply. Yeah. More direct violence between the cops and the gangs. Because Max and Goose would have been bringing the violence to the gangs. Mm -hmm. And I feel like when you have Max and Goose working together, they probably would have roped in uh, Rupin, Charlie. They probably would have maybe even pulled in the help of... Sars and Scuttle, although we didn't really know if... Their status. Of their final status. I think yeah. one of them died, one of them didn't from the opening chase, but that's minutiae from the first season. We won't dwell on that too much. Yeah, there's plenty of minutiae from the second season. Exactly. So we see in this second half of the montage, we have Max and Jesse lying by a river. Uh, that's a scene where Max was talking a lot about his father. We got to get a little bit of his backstory there. Probably one of the most important monologues from that movie. I think so. Yeah. yeah. And then we kind of cut from that to a line of the bikies speeding down the road. And this is Toe Cutter's gang. And then George Miller decided to insert one of the most awkward kissing scenes I think I've ever seen between two people. It's Mel Gibson and Joanne Samuel as Jesse and Max, and he is kissing her, and it's just like... It non-committal. It's just... Like, if you're going to kiss, kiss. It's like they're just kind of like mowing at each other. Like, yeah. Moving their mouths, but like it just was very strange. Yes. I feel like you could probably pick a. Well, are the, I don't think there are any other scenes where they kiss so much. Yeah. Only by the river, but he'd already used a river scene in the montage. Yeah, that's true. I don't know. I just feel like that specific instance. Yeah, it just wasn't a of good mouth kiss. work. Was not great. Yeah. Not great. But we don't have to dwell on that too long because after we see them kissing and then we see the bikey speed past the camera we see jesse running from the bikes with sprog in her arms and then we pretty much from there get to relive her getting run down by toe cutter's gang another time which was really tough for us to watch that first time around because you know when you spend most of your movie with someone and you see them get like brutally mowed down by motorcycles it was it was a rough watch yeah i i do like that this is referenced accurately mm -hmm. they just play the whole scene they don't cut it with anything else to make it seem more dramatic than it was the the voiceover says plainly that uh, with the rev of an engine, his whole world was taken away, something like that. Yeah. It's put rather plainly, this is what happened, and it's more accurate than any of the other part of the montage is. Yeah. I think it's pretty nice that they essentially lifted it straight from that first movie. Yes. And after we see, you know, the bikies riding away and the little shoe and the ball in the road, we get a quick shot of Max and he's dressed all in his MFP gear and he's turning to look at the camera and he's got his shotgun in his hand. This shot specifically is not from the first movie. It's from a deleted scene from the first movie. We talked about this. If you want to go back, listen to minute 87. It's one of the episodes where we 
had Alex Robinson from the Star Wars Minute on as a guest, but we talked about the setup of him stopping for the night to kind of dress his wounds and things like that. And when he wakes up in the morning, he's kind of re-geared up and re-ready to go. And this shot of him turning with the shotgun, that's what was not used okay. in the first movie. I like the idea of showing us a clip that we haven't seen before. Like, we recognize that it's from the first movie, but it's not a clip we've seen. I kind of wish that, that George Miller had used more clips like that throughout this montage. Because this montage, it was very familiar. Yeah. We know all of this. We know where these clips came from. It would have been cool to see new clips scattered in throughout. Yeah, because there were multiple deleted scenes. I'm not sure how many exactly, but I know of at least three. There's this one that they reference here. There's another one where he gets a bunch of guns and ammo from the MFP headquarters. And then there's another one where him and Goose are having kind of a drag race where Max hops on the bike and Goose hops in the car and they kind of switch vehicles so they can have a little bit of a race. Oh. Yeah. That sounds cool. It's probably just a little filler scene that they filmed just to... Yeah. If they needed to pad the runtime. No, they were they, they were good with the padding that they did. Yeah, there was plenty of padding. Not quite as much as uh, if you listen to our hiatus episodes. We watched a movie called Stone. It's kind of the precursor to Mad Max and there was a lot of padding in Stone. Yeah. After we're done with the montage talking about Jesse and how Max lost his family, we get to see another new shot. And this is something that they shot specifically for the Road Warrior. And it's Max, presumably, in silhouette. And he's got kind of a crutch that he's leaning on. And he's walking kind of over the crest of a hill and then down again, away from two little crosses that are stuck in the ground. Mm -hmm. And I think this is supposed to be our confirmation that both Jesse and Sprague died from this incident. Yes, Jesse was left up in the air. The last we heard from her, she had a whole list of wounds, very extensive, but... At the moment, she was alive. Yeah. When Max left her in the hospital, she was still alive. Yeah. And we, at that time, we also got confirmation that Sprague was dead. Yeah. Um, so this does serve to confirm both of them did die. This scene, I like it. Its implications are that after Max did what he had to do and took care of the bikies, and it, it, I mean, it does look like some time passed. He's using a crutch, which means he's still healing, but mm -hmm. he does look a worse for wear. Yeah. Returned to the hospital to claim the bodies. Yeah, because and it it looks like it looks like he buried them himself. When Mad Max seventy nine ended, the last shot we saw was Max kind of driving out into the wasteland, and I like that this here insinuates that instead of him driving out into the wasteland, no, it was him driving back to the hospital. And so he probably got that crutch at the hospital because he shows up to claim these bodies. He's got a hole in his knee. The doctor's like, hey, you know, maybe, maybe let us look at that. that for you. And then after he takes the time, either burying them himself or making arrangements to have them buried, it's at that point, or it's at that point that he heads out into the wasteland. Because we got the sense from the end of the first movie that he just left everything behind. Yes, and with the knowledge that at that point in time, Jesse was still alive, that's a little... It kind of feels like he abandoned her. Exactly. And not that she would have been in any state to know whether or not he was there. And I doubt she lasted much longer. Yeah. Like, hours, maybe. Uh, so, I, 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 but I appreciate 
that he went back for them. I'd like to think that when he arrived back at the hospital, because I'm assuming that's where he went, that either he got a chance to say goodbye to Jesse while she was in a coma, or maybe she surfaced just long enough to see him one last time. I like I would like that to be the case. Yes. That he got some sort of opportunity to say goodbye. Yes. That the the impulse to take care of business was so strong that he had to do it right away, but he still went back. Yeah, I mean, when you're hunting down motorcycle gang members, like, they're constantly on the move, and so if your number one goal at that moment is revenge, well, you know, you gotta go out and take care of that. And then once the revenge is fulfilled, then he's like, oh, yeah, my wife is in the hospital, clinging to life, maybe, hopefully. (laughs) And so he heads back. Or at least that's what we'd like to think he did. Yes. I have been thinking about Max. We haven't necessarily seen him yet in this movie. We're going to do that tomorrow. Finally get our first look at him. But I'd like to think that from that point on, from the point that he lost Jesse until where we catch up with him here, that he's been living his life solo with the exception of the dog that he has. To limit the amount of people that, you know, he can lose. To limit the amount of people that can be hurt because of something that he could have prevented. You know, there's that idea that his job or that some action that he took, for instance, running the opposite direction of where all the gang members are. Taking your shotgun into the woods, even though you should have stayed with your family. Still a little sour about that. But he's got this guilt complex. Absolutely. And I'm pretty sure that's like exactly what it's like. It's the same thing that drove him to join the MFP. Right. Like he wants to he wants to be the hero. Mm-hmm. Which was a theme that ran through Mad Max. And Max failed thoroughly at mm-hmm. being a hero. He couldn't save anybody. Yeah, he couldn't save his best friend. He couldn't save his family. I mean, there are scenes taken from the original screenplay that were never committed to film where Toe Cutter's gang actually go back to MFP headquarters and kill Captain McAfee and probably, you know, kill Rube and Charlie as well. Mm-hmm. Like, So that would have just been like the third pile of dead bodies. And that's a really uncaring way to word it, I know. But, you know, that just would have been another group of people that Max had failed to protect. Yes. And, you know, you get that sense that he just does not want that to happen ever again. And... You can say, okay, yeah, okay, that sets him up as a loner, but at the same time... He can't not, help himself. Yeah, he can't help himself but wanting to save people in some way. Yeah. Like, he can't necessarily just walk away from everybody. Like, he's got to help what people he can because he knows that if he just walks away, like, their blood is on his hand. Right. And but he, in the end, he does walk away. Yeah. Like, he... As we're going to see in this movie, he tries to walk away, can't help himself, he helps them. But once he helps them and the adventure is over, he walks away. Yeah. Once he's sure that they're fine, yeah, he can keep living a loner life. But he can't very well leave someone with a good conscience when he knows that they're in danger. Yeah. Like, we're going to see that later on in the movie. He's going to try to leave them, and it's not going to go well. (laughs) It's not going to go well at all. So the very last thing we see this minute, this is the last five, six seconds of the minute, is Max driving at night, and it's kind of shimmery, I imagine. It was like raining. This is from the first movie again. Yes, it was raining. 
it's the shot of him driving and the narrator says, and it was here in this blighted place. And then it kind of trails off. We're going to get the rest of this line tomorrow. Yes. But I like the idea of them ending this old movie montage with him driving at night because it's almost like he's passing through twilight from one movie into the next. Like George Miller is putting this old movie to bed so that everyone can focus on what's ahead. Yes. You know, it's a nice sentiment, I think. I agree. I think it's a nice transition. And if you're looking for deeper meaning, which we are, there is plenty to be had here. Mm -hmm. And the more I think about this scene, the more I've got this crazy idea in my head, but I'm going to save it for tomorrow because tomorrow is our first ever Fresh Eyes Friday. So come back tomorrow. We're going to have a very special guest coming in as a third chair to talk about Minute 5 of Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior. The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy and presented by Warner Brothers Pictures in association with Village Roadshow Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. You can follow Mad Max Minute on Twitter at Mad Max Minute, on Facebook at Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone, and at MadMaxMinute.com. Please remember to rate and review the podcast on iTunes and share on social media to help others find the show. Thank you for joining us for Minute 4 of The Road Warrior. See you tomorrow.